Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this week we watched the Netflix movie Outlaw King, directed by David Mackenzie and starring Chris Pine. It's a historical action movie about the medieval Scottish hero Robert the Bruce, who fought against the English around the same time as William Wallace. So it's a sort of unofficial sequel to Braveheart, which is a very bad film. <laughs> yes. As you have informed me on multiple occasions. I have never seen Braveheart, so I have Just no appalling. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I saw this movie at the London Film Festival in IMAX, which means that I had a rather different experience from Morgan, who watched it on a laptop um, and found it very boring. I watched oh, no, it on watched, television. watched it on your TV. Found it very boring, but all of Morgan's opinions in this in this episode are actually illegal um, because she's American. So just as a <laughs> preface, but now we can continue on with the conversation. <laughs> yeah, this it was very interesting watching this because you had already seen it and are Scottish, obviously. <laughs> and so I was watching this and I was like, I understand why she reacted to this the way that she did, but this is a very bad film. <laughs> Um, and I have seen David McKenzie's previous two movies. He's made, um, I think, several other like very small indies before those. And, and those are also small indies. So he made the Hell or High Water, which was nominated for quite a few Oscars with um, Chris Pine, Jeff Bridges, and um, Ben Foster, uh, which I liked quite a bit. And that takes place in Texas. And it's kind of this sort of like modern day Western Chris Pine and Ben Foster robbing banks to keep their home from being foreclosed on, I think is the plot. And then Startup takes place in uh, a prison in Northern England, I think. And um, Jack O'Connell is uh, this sort of juvenile offender who gets transferred to an adult prison once he turns 18. Uh, And his father played by, I want to say Ben Mendelsohn, is also in this adult prison. And that film is an incredible movie that I would really recommend if you want to watch something very intense. And so I like, I like David McKenzie's work. Uh, Although he makes movies about men, my impression. Oh, this is emphatically a film about men. Yes. (laughs) There was and women in this movie. (laughs) Yes. And so I was open to this movie, but very rapidly was like, Oh no. This is very dull and I don't care. (laughs) And I think part of the problem is that if you are not already familiar with the story of what is happening, it's not that I couldn't follow what was going on. Like the broad strokes are like the English are bad and the Scottish are good and you should root for them. But the particularities of the individuals, I definitely was sort of like, wait, what? And and why am I supposed to care about this and what what's going on? And and that was not helpful to to watching the film. Whereas if you are you, it's different. <laughs> it's a different story. If you if you enjoy your history, the as far as I can tell, the the reaction from Scotland has been very positive for this film. But it's not like we really learn, like it's not like we learn a ton about Robert the Bruce in school or anything so I mean it really depends on the person how much anyone even knows about this guy there was kind of a curious situation with the editing of this movie where basically it it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival like a few months ago and was basically critically panned there and everyone was just like this is a bloated mess and then the director completely re-edited it 
Um, there's an interesting article about that that just got published at IndieWire that we'll link to in the show notes. But um, when I saw it, it was the version that we all saw on Netflix. So it was, it was like half an hour shorter. Um, and I was like, well, I, I loved it. I would happily watch a fucking like extended, like, because I'm a garbage person. Um, but I mean, obviously I wouldn't because when filmmakers edit down a film, there's a reason for it. Like you don't actually want to see another half hour of like people riding on horseback for ages. But I was like, I wonder if a lot of the stuff that got cut was kind of characterizations for the supporting characters because there's like a couple of people like Aaron Taylor Johnson has second billing in this movie as basically Robert the Bruce's BFF basically he is like an infamous terrorist he was he's this guy whose nickname was the Black Douglas I will talk about him a bit more later but he was a very violent gentleman um very manic performance from Aaron Taylor Johnson in this film they don't really elaborate who the fuck he is in the film so I was like well a great performance from this person who no one's gonna know who this character is um and like the wife as well is the don't really clarify like how long she's in prison like whether it's like it's like six months or ten years or what but like um but then I kind of read this interview with the director and it just seems like they cut like 15 minutes of unnecessary action sequences and there was like some stuff on the side characters it's really puzzling to me like I obviously very much enjoyed this and I do actually think it is genuinely better than Morgan like this film got like middling to positive reviews I think um like kind of offsetting the original negative reviews but the kind of the main criticism I have is that they, they didn't really characterize the least character <laughs> so it's like like you know chris pine who is lovely bless him love to watch chris pine very handsome very nice he's playing a very likable person so he's like oh robert the bruce what a nice inspirational hero so he's you know he's good at like commanding his troops and he's very you know heroic and he's respectful to women which is important because like the the villain king edward prince edward is like comically evil and has an ugly bowl cut and it's just like the most ultimate evil stereotype english monarch and i was like this is really cracking me up but like they don't fucking explain like why he's good at his job and like even like the most rudimentary historical background for this character would make the film more interesting because it's not like there's a dearth of movies where there's like a handsome white guy who's good at fighting with a sword, fighting against some evil monarch or whatever. And with Robert the Bruce, I mean, obviously, like in real life, I'm sure he wasn't particularly nice because you don't become like a warlord by by being like a lovely, charming bloke. But um, he was really smart and kind of educated. Like in the when they introduce it, they do sort of make it clear that the Scottish nobility and the English nobility were intermingling quite a lot and he knew the English prince as a child because that's how this shit worked. Like, people swapped their sons around between the courts to do their page boy training or whatever. But, like, he spoke, like, a bunch of languages. You know, he was a very good sort of political leader. When Once he became king, he very quickly delegated to a parliament. And this was in, like, the 13th century. So he was, like, well ahead of the curve. It would have been interesting to see a depiction of a medieval king who was using sort of leadership styles that people consider to be more modern but were definitely present in many cultures like people would have a parliament and people would be delegating to like politicians and like sending letters to other countries to set up trade links or whatever i mean obviously trade links are not fun but um more personality for robert please (laughs) well this was one of the things that intrigued me while i simultaneously found it unbelievably dull is that in Hell or High Water, he has the same problem. So in that movie, Ben Foster, who 
if you don't know who I'm talking about, literally just pause to Google him because you have seen him in something. Like, I don't mean you, I mean the, yeah. the listeners. No, no, I, will, I know what yeah. I've seen him in. I've seen yes. him in the movie Warcraft. Yeah. So the, a, a question we have discussed why he was in that film. Um, he's a really great actor and he is fantastic in Hell or High Water. And he plays the older brother who's kind of like the manic one who's initiating this bank robbery scheme. And he is really, really good. And Chris Pine is the main character and he's the more laconic figure and he's so boring and also kind of like they're supposed to be playing these kind of poor people in texas who are in this desperate situation and i if i remember correctly his texas accent is terrible and i just like i just didn't believe him at all so, wait, I was so like, chris pine can't do a texas accent but can do a right? scottish accent which I, is I nuts like, are you <laughs> but like i just remember thinking like you're from hollywood you're from hollywood like it's just it was so distracting but he just had like his presence was not compelling so i was interested by the fact that david mckenzie worked with him again like i like chris pine fine as an individual like he seems sort of entertaining he's and, great in wonder Woman, right and i loved him in wonder woman but i think i've seen him in those two things and in star trek and the, I was kind of surprised by how much I loved him in Wonder Woman because I'd never find him, found him that compelling before. And then again in this, I was like, oh, right. I, I don't think you're that great. <laughs> like, because it was the exact same problem as in Hell or High Water, where I think the thing about him is that when he's given something active to do or someone charming to play and i don't love him in star trek either but that is also something more i mean active. that's the fault of the i mean i think he does what he's given right because there's like in this movie it's kind of a good example is like the female lead is played by florence Pugh, who is amazing the actress from lady macbeth and her role is like quite frankly just an absolute typical wife role it is a nothing role she has screen time but it is like oh she's like a plucky young woman who throws in her lot with her arranged husband right yeah it's terrible it's nothing but like i'm like she's fantastic because florence Pugh just has like a lot of energy and she has a lot of screen presence i'm like obviously chris pine also has screen presence and i am very fond of chris pine but i think he's one of these actors where it's sort of like you need patty jenkins to explain to him precisely the type of charm that he needs to switch on to play a really great character in wonder woman and in this it's like well you're playing robert the bruce and it's like david mckenzie you needed to give him more information <laughs> well this is the difference between those two actors right and i was gonna i was gonna compare them florence Pugh, who was in this movie lady macbeth which is incredible and she is when the camera is on her and she's not saying anything and she says very little in lady macbeth there's very little dialogue in that movie she's unbelievably compelling because you can sort of tell that there's stuff going on in her head. Like there's just all this stuff going on back there. And that's the case in this movie too, even this very boring role. I kept thinking like the more interesting movie is so obviously the movie about this woman, which Dave McKenzie was never going to make, but like that I would be interested in watching. Right. And I don't like Chris Pine, when the camera is on him and he's not, doesn't have something active to do if he's just sitting there, which is much of this film he just doesn't have it. Like, he can't make that interesting. And most actors cannot, but great actors can. And instead, a lot of women can, because that is the role that they, they have. In right. order to succeed, you have to be a fucking Kristen Stewart, because you know that your role is, like, gazing into the sunset wistfully for, like, a fucking hour. <laughs> yes. 
Whereas he gazes at things a lot in this movie and it's just like the same blank expression. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is just torturous. Like, why? <laughs> I know many of our listeners are going to be big Chris Pine fans, but I just... Mm. Mm-mm-mm. And I think also a lot of people are just going to enjoy this. <laughs> well, Scottish <laughs> people will enjoy it. And men, more men are going to enjoy this. I kept thinking watching this. Literally, I had the thought within the first five minutes that I could not get it out of my head. That this was just Outlander for men. It's so similar to the plot of Outlander minus the time travel. I cannot describe to you. Outlander takes place a few centuries later, but the it's, it's like the Jacobite. Like so many Scottish stories, it's about fighting an evil English monarch. Exactly. Comically evil Englishman. (laughs) But there's all this stuff about them being on the run. Many of the situations, like literally like concrete situations are very similar. Interesting. Okay, I've not seen or read Outlander. I I watched the first season. I binged the first season because I sort of was like, well, I'll try this. And then it's terrible, but it gets you. (laughs) And so then I was like, well, I have to keep watching it's really awful but i completely understand why it's so popular because it is very addictive and it is so deliberately made for like middle-aged straight women in a way that very little media oh for sure right like it is so explicitly targeted at that demographic almost no tv shows are and i was sort of like this is not really for me but it was enough that I got through that first season and then was like, well, I don't need to watch any more of this. But I I got me through that first season, right? But there was a lot of sort of situational stuff in this movie that was very similar to that. But it was all from the sort of like male perspective. Like there was fighting and there was all this stuff. And the woman character is then very passive. And I was like, we'll see in Outlander, it's all from the... I mean, they have stuff from the men's characters' points of view. Like, they, they sort of switch back and forth. But obviously, it's all about... It's all about the women. Like, it's all about that. And I was like, yeah, I did not really care for Outlander, ultimately. But, like, even though that was very stupid and very historically inaccurate... And like, I mean, they did not care at all, right? Like, that's not the point of that show. I was like, I feel like it... And this is so obsessively historically accurate to the point of like fetishization. Like the costumes are amazing, but it was almost distracting to me, like how precise everything was. I was like, I think Outlander might be better. (laughs) (laughs) That which is weird, like given the lack of sort of the background information, right? Mm -hmm. Like in terms of like initially like explaining the setup of the war. Yes. I mean, I like basically whenever I want to watch a historical movie, I'm always like, but there's so much amazing background you could include in here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, so like, I mean, Dave McKenzie is obviously Scottish. And his last movie was this sort of American Western film, which was good. And it got nominated for Oscars. And he had previously been making these like tiny indie movies. Mm. And then had this situation where he had a lot more power than he had ever had previously. And what he wanted to do was like, I'm sure from youth had been like, I really want to make a Robert the Bruce movie. God and there bless isn't him. one is the thing. There isn't yeah. one. So it's like, there is actually, because it's like the other day, my friend was like, we should f- watch, you know, if there's one from the 50s, like watch that one. And I looked it up and there, I mean, there was like a TV movie from the 90s or something, but I think people just like, were focusing on, you know, Rob Roy or Mary Queen of Scots or William Wallace and forgot about, you know, Robert Bruce, who's also great. So, yeah. But what this felt like to me 
was someone who just loves the history so much and was so excited to be getting to do this that he was being very obsessive about all the particularities. And like, there's nothing wrong with obviously being historically accurate about costumes or whatever. Like that's a virtue to have your costumes right. And the costumes in this were, were amazing. I'm not, you know, but I remember like there's stuff at the beginning, like the whole first little section, they get married and then they're at the castle together and then whatever. And the marriage ceremony is also like accurate to the period. And I was just like, you just were so happy doing all of this stuff. And I, I'm not sure why we're watching all of this. Like it was clear that he just was so excited, but the drama was not compelling enough to match the history. And so it felt more like someone who was like playing in a sandbox than someone who had a... Whereas I was just like, cool wedding. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, again, it's not like he should have had a historically inaccurate wedding. And it's not like there was no reason to show the wedding because the wife was a character in the movie. But the whole thing was sort of plottingly paced. And so it, it just didn't feel like it, 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 any of it mattered dramatically right like it was just sort of like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and I'm going to show it all to you perfectly because I have it all perfectly made it was like congratulations my favorite like, part was in in terms of that was like there's a point where Robert the Bruce has gone too far and it's time for the evil English prince to like properly go into Scotland and put this rebellion to the sword and there is this moment like which is from some actual historical text where like they they're like oh there's no rules now and they do this big sort of like oath-taking ceremony which is in the movie and there was this speech that the king or the prince you know supposedly made all the historical sources are a bit dodged because it's like 700 years ago but there's this thing where he supposedly swore like in he was like i swear in front of like england and these two swans which is like such a weird quote and they kept it in the movie because they have like <laughs> the prince like brandishing these two dead swans that he's like you know they're gonna eat at the feast or whatever because it's like the royal food and i was like i love this you've really you found a way to make this speech very silly <laughs> see that was entertaining to me i was i mean i obviously didn't know the context of the swans prince but edward it was, was just funny. consistently very funny because he was just so it wasn't quite on the same like just pure quality level as alan rickman in robin hood but it's sort of that level where it's like there is no three-dimensional characterization it's like the english prince he loves to torture. He's misogynist. He's got a bad haircut. He's like a little tantrum daddy issues, shitty Draco Malfoy. He's going to stamp his foot and he's going to lose lots of battles to the handsome blue-eyed hero who's an underdog who's excellent at guerrilla warfare. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Okay. <laughs> yes. I had no problem with that. I was like, this is fine. I mean, I didn't mind the fact that the English were cartoonishly evil. Like, I that's, that's perfectly acceptable to me. Yeah. Like, you know, that's whatever. I, I accept that the English are, are evil. It just needed all to be more dramatically compelling because the hero is, has one facial expression the entire time. Like, and then, as you said, like all the supporting characters are just sort of present. Like at the end of the movie, they have this the thing where they're like, you know, this guy did this and this guy did that. And I was like, that character had three lines of dialogue. Like, I don't know why I'm supposed to care about this red haired dude. Like, I did enjoy Aaron Taylor Johnson's performance quite a bit as as the, the manic dude. 
he just because he was actually doing something performance wise when Chris Pine was not. And it was funny. So he is known to be um, difficult, shall we say? It's a diplomatic way of, of putting it on set. Um, and, and just generally seems like not the most pleasant person. I've never liked him very much. Um, but I realized I would look him up on IMDb and I was watching and I have seen him previously in two whole movies. <laughs> and I was like, really? Only two him in, like, Avengers. And- <laughs> I've seen him in Avengers and Anna Karenina. And I had absolutely thought it was more. And I think it is just that he kind of is a tabloid presence because he had this, he's married to, um, this woman who directed him in a movie who's much older and it got a lot of attention at the time. And But I was I was really surprised and uh, he's not very good in Avengers. And in Anna Karenina, he plays Vronsky, who is the romantic lead in that book who Anna Karenina has an affair with, who's supposed to be this like young, very dashing aristocrat. And um, that is not Aaron Taylor Johnson's area. And there's this one moment in Anna Karenina where they're like, having this romantic situation. And she, Keira Knightley, who plays Anna Karenina, licks his little blonde mustache. Uh, and to this no. day, to this day, it is the least erotic thing I have ever seen in Yeah, my life. I can never watch this movie. You've told me about this before and I'm like, that's hell. <laughs> and I mean, literally, I remember the entire theater being like, oh, <laughs> it was so awful. And so... But it was more a case of just, like, horrendous miscasting than anything else. Like, it, I just don't know why he was in the movie. And in this, I was sort of like, oh, you're actually, like, he's pretty good in it. And I was like, oh, yeah. you're fine. This, you know, okay. And he's playing you're, a very fun fine. character. Yeah, he's playing the only fun character He's like a frothing the at the mouth berserker. yeah. And it's, Actually, it's a before, good time. Before we move on to whatever it is we're talking about next, I just remembered um, kind of regarding the thing you said about like this being a man film, which of course, <laughs> <laughs> but I love many a man film, especially if it involves a historical man with a sword. Um, but like something I found kind of interesting, like when I was writing my review afterwards is this to me does actually feel distinct from like the recent sort of onslaught of aggressively gritty historical dramas of this type because like for the past 10-15 years there's been quite a lot of swords and sandals epics like kind of post gladiator almost all of them have been bad and yes I have seen all of them Um, (laughs) but like they're very I mean you know kind of like very often very kind of visually gray like there's several Russell Crowe movies where it's like visually gray loads of mud just loads of sort of misery and angst but like not very well articulated misery and angst and very kind of aggressively masculine and to clarify for people who've not seen this film yet, I do not think that Outlaw King is in that category because while it is definitely a man film and it's got a lot of sort of historical sword fight action sequences, it is quite sentimental. And the main character is like explicitly portrayed as sort of like quite a kind person. And it's sort of like, oh, he's the man of the people. He helps his men dig the trenches and the battlefield. And he's very kind to his wife. And, you know, it's, it's all about sort of optimism and hope for the future of the nation without getting too weirdly kind of, you know, nationalistic in a way that will feel creepy to non-Scottish people. Um, yeah, it's it's not sort of in that like gritty macho zone. Yes, it's not rapey. 
Um, there are a couple scenes where the English are like taking over castles where that's kind of alluded to, but it's not a big part of the movie. And like when Chris Pine and Florence Pugh get married, she's quite like quite a bit younger, and obviously, and is and she is English and has been taken to this you know unfamiliar place and is obviously you know not thrilled with this whole situation. And on their wedding night, he kind of was just like, "Well, good night," and leaves her alone, um, which is all very nice. And in terms of the um, quality of the filmmaking it's obviously mean, david clancy is a very good director and it's much higher than a lot of those other movies but it's not really in service of much yeah it's just a lot of sweeping vistas of scottish yeah. countryside and i was like oh i do love my whole country <laughs> <laughs> getting all misty eyed <laughs> it's very beautiful i was like oh yeah it's very it's very pretty <laughs> and it was just fine like you know this movie's not really aspiring to be high art, so it's okay. It's, I'm pretty sure there's you know. another Robert the Bruce movie coming out, like, next year, which is wild. Like, I don't know why. I'm just going to look it up, because I saw about it, and I was like, why would you do that? Like, we waited 100 years and two came along <laughs> at once. Right, so yes, there is a Robert the Bruce movie coming out, and this is evidently a smaller one but it takes place like after he becomes king and it stars Angus McFadden. Never who is not him. someone I recognize. Who directed it? This is, okay, no shit. This is the sequel to Braveheart. So he played Robert the Bruce in Braveheart in oh 1995. My God. Oh my and he's God. Robert. So this is direct. It's not directed by Mel Gibson, but like this is, okay, this is the much, much attempted sequel to Braveheart. God. I mean, that is <laughs> fascinating. Really fascinating. Yeah, I really can't wow. emphasize enough how bad Braveheart is. But yeah. if this is a completely different person in charge, who the fuck knows? But um, That's very funny, though. Yeah. The, the original definitely is, like, it is absolutely a huge stereotype of the bad man film. And it is also very rapey. Like, Mel Gibson essentially event- invented from whole cloth this whole, like, motive where it's like, yes, the king takes every firstborn daughter from on her wedding night and, like, rapes her. And it's like, it's like we don't need that. First of all, that's bad and inaccurate and, like, fake. And also, you already have people being oppressed by the aristocracy. You don't actually need to add this other element. And it's, oh, it's bad. Um, let's talk a little bit about Netflix and this movie. Yes. So you, uh, as you said, saw it on a big, big screen, critic screening. I did not. And so in Scotland, people have been watching this and will continue to watch it on their televisions because it has massive And it appeal. has a theatrical release. That also will help, right? Whereas here, there, of course, is a theatrical release. And because the historical stuff is a bit slow, and it, I think, is a bit confusing if you don't really know what's going on, I don't really understand the Netflix situation. I would never have finished this (laughs) if I had not been forced to. People watch Daredevil is the thing. Yeah, but- because I'm always very puzzled by like the ability of very dull Netflix shows to carry on. But television and movies are not the same. Because television you binge and you just let it continue. And a movie you watch 5 minutes and you're like, "Eh," and you continue to the next thing. This movie cost 93 million dollars. Where are they finding this money? My other Netflix comment, which is on a very different note, is that the biggest headline out of this movie was about Chris Pine's penis. 
Which is visible in this film. I keep fucking forgetting. Like, ten times now, people have been like, oh, it's the penis movie. And, like, after I saw it, someone was like, oh, did you see the penis? And I literally keep forgetting. It's like a non-entity. Yes, he has a penis. Look, when you watch this on a fucking television screen, and I have a big-ass TV, you, like, can't fucking see it. What are people on about? I don't understand. I don't understand. People need to calm down. That's my that's my headline for this movie. So people need to chill the fuck out. There's more Chris Pine nudity action, I would say, qualitatively speaking, in Wonder Woman. Yes. A film directed by the, the female gaze. Yeah. So if that's actually what you should be going for. <laughs> I mean, if you want to see Chris Pine's butt, that is also in this movie for a much longer period of time. And there's like a close up. So... Just that's in there. Yeah, there's a sex like, scene that's edited in a way that makes that implies due to editing that they have sex and then both come instantly in one minute. <laughs> oh my god, it was so funny. I was just like, and and also she's presumably like never had sex before and is yeah. immediately just like this is great. And I was like, and then it's it is over a true, immediately. It is a true movie sex scene. Okay, it is, this a is classic. Great. Oh my god, it it's was like it's so rare for me to watch a movie with a sex scene that isn't like a edgy indie drama that I'd actually forgotten that most movie sex scenes are two naked people slightly apart from each other. So you can see both of them. So they're not like pressed together and they're like they they, they have sex for one minute according to editing and then both come instantly. <laughs> well, this is the thing, and like people have written about this, that m- movies don't do sex scenes like that very often anymore because sex scenes in movies have generally like dipped like the the volume of them um because americans are all prudes so hollywood movies don't tend to have sex scenes very much which i actually don't think is much of a problem because this kind of sex scene is such a waste of time like why even bother with it and so i haven't seen one like that in a while either because i just don't think they do them very much and which I think is fine. And so watching it, I was like, oh, this is a throwback. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just, I was just, I just remember, it was like, it really took me out of the moment because I just remember watching the sex scene and being like, they need to cut this in a way that indicates the passage of time. <laughs> they have not done that. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. It's, wow. Okay. Especially because, I mean, it's, from, in terms of my thought process during it, Florence Pugh was in Lady Macbeth, a tiny indie drama with a lot of sex scenes that are different than this. And I was like, oh, okay. Watch watch that movie, everyone. It's very good. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. So there's there's there are a lot of things about this film that... Uh, I did not enjoy. But I just realized you... I've like talked hardly at all about history. I was like, I was like, gonna have so many comments about the history <laughs> of this movie, and I like forgot. <laughs> I mean, do you want to share anything about history before we conclude? Um, well, I talked. About, I already talked about how Robert the Bruce is a much more interesting leader than this movie depicts. I was interested in how much of his life this movie showed because it was a relatively short period of time which I often think is actually a good idea for a biopic because when you try and get whole life in there it's like fucking impossible like I think in my review I was like if you wanted to do an actual biopic of Robert the Bruce it should be like a six-part miniseries so you can just have like three actors playing him over the course of his life and in this part basically it was sort of it starts off in a period where all of the Scottish nobility have officially surrendered to England and it kind of opens with 
them sort of officially pledging fealty and then very quickly Robert the Bruce is like this fucking sucks we need to just have another rebellion immediately um which is basically what happened and then it kind of goes over a few years where they don't really clarify how long it's taking place for it but like they go over a few years where he is becoming an outlaw and like learning how to do guerrilla warfare against the English and it kind of culminates in a big battle and it isn't the famous battle it ends with like the battle of Loudon Hill but like that is one where I'm like I know the name of the battle but I don't really know much about it whereas like every school kid I would say in Scotland probably like gets a school trip to go and visit Bannockburn and hear like heroic tales of how a bunch of English people were like brutally slaughtered in a marsh (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, but like this is the kind of the theme for like every Scottish battle is either the um, English people's overwhelming odds incredibly brutally slaughtered the Scottish or weirdly the English were idiots and tried to like drive directly into a swamp. There was a battle during the William Wallace period where the English king which was the prince's dad in this movie tried to take 9,000 soldiers across a bridge that was two horses wide (laughs) (laughs) and it was like you can't do that you fucking idiots Um, (laughs) but like there's a lot of those but um it was sort of like when I got to the end, I was like, oh, okay. And then I sort of realized about five minutes into the battle, I was like, this isn't the Battle of Bannockburn, which was, I think, something that only the Scottish are going to care about. But it was like, it was yes. an interesting choice. And they also don't, one of the things that got cut out, which I think is a very good plan, was um, they cut out, they apparently filmed a scene where he like just bumps into William Wallace in a forest, which would have been absolute trash. And I was like, thank you for cutting that. And they also don't include, there's this like famous legend where it was like, while Robert the Bruce was on the run, he like is in a cave and he sees this spider that's trying and failing to build its web and it's like and he's like oh this teaches me to like try and try again you know and it's this sort of inspirational and clearly fictional fake tale um and they did not include it in the movie but there's two separate allusions to the spider where you see like a little spider crawling across the screen and then robert looks at it sort of wistfully and i was like oh my god they're like cock teasing us for the spider but ditto you don't need to have that in the fucking movie because it's like a huge waste of time Uh, (laughs) but like they had yeah they had this kind of truncated period but like in terms of in terms of the battle stuff, I could have done with some more intricacy, you know? Could have done with some more battle details. Well, the one thing I did actually find interesting about this movie was the final battle, which went on for too long, but it is... They did show strategy stuff. They showed strategy stuff, and it was interesting, because I was like, oh, they really fucked them up. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and one of the things the movie does quite well is show just like how stupid warfare was at mm. this time right like all these people lining up on a field right it's like you know this is just dumb i mean obviously all war on an ethical level is dumb and bad but like in terms of this i i find military strategy pretty interesting in general and same these this this sort of old school way of like literally armies lining up against each other and then being like and we will fight it on it's like why why are you doing this and the English are still operating in that mode, right? And then the Scottish figure out, well, we actually know the territory and we don't have to do that. And the sort of thing they do right at the end, I had not seen before because this era of history is not uh, not a period I know very much about. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is good. Like, that was smart. Um, and then it sort of devolves into just like people hacking each other up. And I was like, what? I think this has gone on for a while. But mm-hmm. if they had done more of that, yeah, I think it 
probably would have been more interesting. Well, that's what I find interesting because it's like what I think there should be more of just in historical films in general because there's so many historical battle movies and either it's like absolute nonsense films like a Robin Hood movie where they just have a bunch of modern sort of CGI stuff or it, they just have a melee battle. And that's kind of what this was, but like they also clearly did go into like the nitty gritty of what the strategy stuff was and like Robert the Bruce is a really good choice for that because he's kind of the quintessential example of one of these military leaders who succeeded as a guerrilla fighter and as like a kind of very cinematic style underdog hero against a much more much bigger more organized army and like you do like this movie is basically like the origin story of his army because like he spends most of the film traveling to really secluded locations in Scotland and trying to like drum up campaign support and everyone's like please fuck off I need to like fish some more <laughs> and then eventually they're like oh actually maybe we should just do some fighting because otherwise I'm gonna have my taxes collected by some knob in London for the next 500 years but yeah like they do they do have some of this stuff in the final battle where you see his like pitched battle stuff but I was like I could have gone for some more guerrilla warfare before I watched this, I was sort of messaging Morgan and a couple of my friends like, hope they have the right kind of guerrilla pony warfare in here. Because like, <laughs> if you've ever heard of like a hobby horse, like the kids' hobby horses, that is actually a hobbler horse, which is the type of horse that they were using to like gallop around like mini pony fighting in the mountains. And then you just have a bunch of fucking slaughtered English people. Um, yeah. Like what I what I really want, like my ultimate desire is I want to see a post-Roman or current Roman Britain era Celtic charioteer of action movie because the Celtic charioteers were fucking nuts. Like they had, they the, the chariots went very fast, like alarmingly fast. So it's already very cinematic, and there was like a long pole that sort of attached this very fast nippy chariot to a horse. And you'd have one person in the chariot, and you'd have one person who would just like run up the balance beam of the horse and fucking stab someone through the heart with a really long spear. It's very cool. <laughs> There's like a whole sequence in Caesar's Gallic Wars where like he kind of describes like basically landing on British soil. And being like, well, obviously they won the battle eventually because they had kind of superior organization, but they were like, this is fucking scary. Like there's these like <laughs> mad, like spiky haired Celts running up and down, like, and they didn't understand the concept of like strategic retreat. Cause like that was something the Romans did, but the, 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 the Celts were just like, well, you just keep going really fast at the enemy until they run away. And they do. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I think I also like my kind of final... I'm trying to think because it's like there's just so many details. Oh, there's one that you would like, which is that Andy Murray, not the Andy Murray, but there should have been an Andy Murray in this movie <laughs> because there was an Andrew Murray who was actually a pivotal figure in the kind of William Wallace, Robert the Bruce era. And he is left out of everything because he's just not in any of the fun histories that were written down. Because um, like the like the Braveheart movie is just based on this famous epic poem book that was written 300 years later and is all invented. Um, but Andy Murray should be in this film as a central figure <laughs> as a member of the Scottish nobility. And it would have been great if they just had Andy Murray play him. Um, because, you know. <laughs> Maybe that's who he's named after. You never know. <laughs> I do believe he voted voted yes on Oh Murray yeah, I think he was so... he was like, he only kind of came, he right at the last minute, he was like, yeah. I'm pro-independence, but like he didn't yeah. go in early because he was like, gotta keep things yeah. political. Um, yeah. But yeah, he was pro-independence. And um, this movie is a very good propaganda tool. Um, yes. Although happily, they did acknowledge that at least one of Robert the Bruce's besties was just a full-on terrorist. That was yeah. Aaron Taylor Johnson's character, who is one of the most infamous figures of this period, and really did just... He just murdered so many civilians in really, truly horrifying ways, and was basically... He, he became, like, the horror story of the English borders, where people were like, watch out for the Black Douglas. He's, he's the only person in this movie who... Like, I have heard that name before. 
I could not have given you any information. Oh no, I mean, no one about... apart from Scottish people will be able to tell you who the fuck he is, but like... Right, yeah. but that's like a name that is, you know, whereas no one else. I mean, except for like Edward II, obviously. Um, yeah, that's that's our history lesson. Yes. For today. <laughs> um, next week, we are going to talk about my favorite show. So I said in Philadelphia. Oh, it's so good. I'm excited. I'm excited yeah. to talk about this. The last season just ended recently. Yeah, season 13. <laughs> you will be able to listen to this podcast without having seen the show. Yes. It has been on for a very long time. Uh, but if you have watched and have not been watching the most recent episodes, uh, now would be a good time to catch up because we will talk about them as well. And honest, to be honest, if you don't watch it at all, if you just go on Netflix and watch like a couple of episodes that will give you an idea, don't start from the beginning. Just watch like the musical episode... I, or, see this here. I would I would disagree with you. I would start not. at the beginning okay. of season four because you told me to watch the musical episode first, and I did, and I was like, "This is weird, but okay. funny." And I will start at the beginning of season four. Okay. And I think the musical episode works a lot better with context. Okay. So I start you. at the beginning of season four. The beginning seasons are not good at all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, beginning of season four is where I started earlier in the year, and this has been my prevailing obsession since around March. It's been a, a balm to me in these troubled times to just watch a comedy about very horrible people. It's good stuff. Uh, so we will be talking about that. I'm very excited. Thank you so much as ever for listening. If you would like to support us and hear some fun extra content, we have some, some more coming up soon. You can pledge on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Otherwise, you can find us on our website, overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.